I've been trying to do this by theme. Last week's theme was, I love that C.S. Lewis portrays lion, or, uh, C.S. Jesus as a big scary lion in the Chronicles of Narnia. I think there's a lot of reality to that, that Jesus is someone we love, but we're terrified of him. And you don't discover how great he is until you kind of take that vulnerability down, like Jill, kneel down in front of him and drink from the stream. And so letting Christ in, letting the big scary lion in to discover how great he is, kind of a major theme of C.S. Lewis. So today I want to start in the scriptures. That's going to kind of be our anchor is let me teach the doctrine. And then there's a doctrine that C.S. Lewis caught very well and then taught throughout all of his writings. And I kind of want to show you that doctrine, but mostly focus on Chronicles of Narnia today. So let me just say it and then I'll back it up with the scriptures. Everyone gets what they want. Everyone goes to the kingdom they want to go to. Not everyone wants celestial. Life is about educating your desires to decide what you really want. But in the end, everyone gets what they desire. I mean, just let that distill upon you for a second. I love how Dallin H. Oaks said it in our last general conference. We talked about degrees of glory. Elder Oaks, oh, I had to transfer this one. Hold on. Sorry, I jumped out. Let me jump back in. Where did I put it? Where did I put Elder Oaks? All right, we'll pull up the conference talk. Let's do it this way. If you are familiar, you remember that great conference talks on the degrees of glory from Elder Oaks? I love how he said this. Here's the doctrine. We have a loving Heavenly Father who will see that we receive every blessing and every advantage that our own desires and choices allow. We will go to the kingdom we choose. We will receive what we want. And that's the good news and the bad news. So let's, a couple scriptures. If you'll turn with me to Alma chapter 29, that great, oh, that I were an angel and could have the wish of my heart. Do you remember what Alma says? Oh, if I could force salvation on people. Oh, if I were an angel and could shake them and force salvation on them. Oh, wait, that's not the Lord's plan. I don't really want that. So he catches himself and says, Ready? Let's read verse 4. I ought not to harrow up in my desires the firm decree of a just God, for I know that he granteth unto men according to their desires. What do you want? Do you want the fullness of my kingdom? I'll give it to you. 
Do you want a lesser kingdom? I'll give it to you. Whether it be unto death or unto life, yea, I know that he allotteth unto men, yea, decreeth unto them decrees which are unalterable according to their wills, whether they be salvation or unto destruction. Yea, I know that good and evil come before all men, and he that knoweth God, not good from evil is blameless. But he that knoweth good and evil. Ready? Here it is. Here's the secret. You get to decide which kingdom you go to. To him it is given according to his desires. Whether he desireth good or evil, life or death, joy or remorse of conscience. You get to decide... And God will grant you whatever happiness he can, the, the maximum happiness he can based on what you want. If you want celestial glory, you will live that way, striving for it. And in the end, that is the glory you will obtain. If you do not want to be there, rest assured, you don't have to go there. And everyone gets what they desire. So what, we're here on earth to figure out what do you want? What do you want? Now, let me chain some scriptures. Now, we know about three degrees of glory. We know that there are three degrees of glory. C.S. Lewis never knew that. So let me just kind of live in his world for a second, and let's talk about the difference between kingdoms of glory and those who don't get a kingdom of glory. Turn with me to Doctrine and Covenants section 88. Section 88. Let me show you a fascinating phrase. Actually, you know what? Let's do that one last. Let me go in reverse order. Let's start in the New Testament. Let me show you this in every book of Scripture. Let's start in the New Testament. Go to Acts chapter 1. Let's do this in reverse order. Let's build up to Doctrine and Covenants 88. So Acts chapter 1, New Testament, we have to replace Judas Iscariot, who ended his life, and we have a vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve. Now, according to the New Testament, where does Judas go? I'll write this, Acts 1, 25. Where does Judas go when he committed suicide? It's a fascinating phrase. He went to his own place. Judas Iscariot went to his own place. All right, let's go Book of Mormon. We're actually going to do Old Testament in the Book of Mormon. Let's do the prophet Zenos. Zenos was a tremendous Old Testament prophet. Lehi loved him. When he gets the brass plates and starts reading the brass plates, one of the things that caught his attention the most was Zenos. He was a tremendous Old Testament prophet. Nephi quotes Zenos. So go to the Old Testament by turning to Jacob 5 in the Book of Mormon. Jacob chapter 5. Don't think you're reading the Book of Mormon. You're not. You're reading the Old Testament. Go to verse 77. In the end, remember, this is the fruit that is bad and the fruit that is good, and we're trying to get the bad fruit to become good fruit. Where does all the bad fruit go in the end? Book of Mormon. Sorry, let me get there. Book of Mormon, Jacob 5, last verse. Where does the bad fruit go? 
its own place. The evil fruit ends up in its own place. That's an interesting phrase. We've now seen it twice. New Testament, Old Testament. In the end, if you, if you choose to grow bad fruit, you will end up in your own place. Now let's do Book of Mormon. Turn to the very next chapter, chapter 6. Jacob is commenting on this huge allegory that you can see was 77 verses. And Jacob's comment, what's his summary? I can't believe how stupid it is to do what? His commentary was, I can't believe how cursed are they who shall be cast out where? Their own place. And notice the punctuation mark. I know Joseph didn't translate that, but bear with me. Their own place. How foolish to end up in your own place. 6-3. All right, let's do, no, it's, it's right there. Nope, there. Their own place. Let's do Doctrine and Covenants. Now go back to section 88. Let's talk about everyone who chose Satan in premortal life. All of the sons of perdition, everyone that we could classify as a son of perdition, where do they spend eternity? You and I call it outer darkness. There's a better term than outer darkness. Section 88, let's start in verse 29. Tell me what group of people get resurrected in verse 29. Okay, we're going to quicken or resurrect which group? Celestial. So let's pull all the celestial people out. Verse 30, who do we resurrect in 30? Terrestrial. Verse 31, telestial. So if we've resurrected all the celestial, all the terrestrial, and all the telestial, who would be left to resurrect? Sons of perdition who came to earth and got a body. Will there be a few? Apparently, a handful. They will be resurrected. Notice verse 32. They who remain shall be quickened. You chose Christ in pre-mortal life. You come to earth to get a body. You will be resurrected. But where do they go after that? Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place. So Satan and, well, we'll do Satan in a second. All of those who followed Satan will end up in their own place place. Why? To enjoy that which they are willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. He offered them something greater and they didn't want it. So they get to enjoy what they did want. Everyone gets what they want. Even the sons of perdition get what they want. And what is it that they rejected? They were not willing to receive that which they could have received. So go to the very next verse. What could they have received? What is it that they didn't want? For what is it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he received not the gift? Behold, he rejoiceth not in that which is given to him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. What's the gift they won't receive? 
his atonement. They will not receive his atonement. So what does he give them instead? What they want. What do you want instead of Christ? And so they go to their own place. Now, one more. Let's do Satan himself. Same section, verse 114. Section 88, verse 114. Where will Satan spend eternity? What's the name of the place where Satan will spend eternity? Then cometh the battle of the great God, and the devil and his army shall be cast away into their own place. Now tell me why. Because how did they want to live? Their way. If you want to live your way, if you choose to live your way, what does Heavenly Father say? Okay. You can have whatever reward you choose for yourself. And if you don't want one of my places, if you don't want one of my places by living my way, you can go have whatever place you can make for yourself. And these people always lived their way, so what reward is there? In the end, Heavenly Father walks them to the edge of his kingdom. He walks them to the edge and said, you need to go find your own place because you don't want to live here. Everyone gets what they want. Now, that is a concept that C.S. Lewis brilliantly understood. I'm going to jump to the great divorce today. We'll come to that in our final classes. But in the great divorce, listen to how beautifully he says it. Um, just so you know, I'm in, I'm in chapter 9 of the great divorce. Now, here's the idea. The great divorce is a story of a group of ghosts from hell who go on vacation to heaven. And when they get there, they're told anyone who wants to can stay. You're all welcome to stay in heaven. You just have to let go of the one thing you're holding on to that's keeping you in hell. And then down come some angels from heaven to kind of escort them in, to convince them to come up. And we get to hear those conversations. And in every conversation, they get back on the bus and go back to hell rather than letting go of the one thing that they were holding on to. Only one person stays in heaven. At the end of that, as C.S. Lewis, who's the main character, is talking to his hero, George MacDonald, he says this. I think this is one of the most profound things C.S. Lewis ever wrote. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, Thy will be done. That is one of the most profound things he ever wrote. There are only two kinds of people. And I would suggest the degrees of glory are separated by how much of His way do you fully accept.
But anyone who accepts a kingdom of glory is willing to live his way. Therefore, they get one of his places. If you do not want to live his way, he won't force you. And he will give you whatever you wanted instead. I think that's profound. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Now, in mere Christianity, let me show you how he portrays that in mere Christianity. Let's jump to mere Christianity for a second. I'm in book two of mere Christianity, the chapter called The Shocking Alternative. Uh, mere Christianity is four books put together. This is book two. I think it's the third chapter. C.S. Lewis wrote, The moment you have a self at all, there is a possibility of putting yourself first. Wanting to be the center. Wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan. And that was the sin he taught the human race. Some people think the fall of man had something to do with sex, but that is a mistake. The story in the book of Genesis rather suggests that some corruption in our sexual nature followed the fall and was a result, not its cause. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could step up on their own as if they had created themselves be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why we can never succeed in this, God made us, invented us as a machine invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and it would not properly run on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. Without bothering about religion, God cannot make us, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from Himself because it is just not there. There is no such thing. If you want his happiness, you do it by accepting his way. If you won't, I don't want to live his way. He says to you, go, go live however you want to live. Now, that's the doctrine. Let's watch how he portrays it in Chronicles of Narnia. Now, years ago when they started to, I think... If I were to guess, C.S. Lewis wrote Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first. 
And then as he wrote them, they published him in the order he wrote them. And then years later, we found a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote to his stepson, Doug Gresham, in which he reordered them. So we have now reprinted them in the order he intended us to read. He did not put, he did not put Lion, the War, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first. He put the magician's nephew first because the whole point of the magician's nephew is the founding of Narnia. Diggory and Pollery go, go into Charn. They wake up Jadis. Jadis follows them into an uncreated world, which will become Narnia. So the children and Jadis are there. Aslan comes in and he creates Narnia. Anyone know how he brings it into existence? One of the most beautiful concepts I love in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan brings Narnia into existence by singing it. He sings it into existence, which is a beautiful thought. So what's, what's about to happen is Aslan has just created Narnia. Diggory and Polly are there, and Diggory is sent on a mission to go far away and grab fruit from a garden and bring it back to Aslan. So they go on a little journey, and they get to the garden. Now let's get there. So I'm in um, The Magician's Nephew, which is book number one in the reordering of them. All right, but Magician's Nephew, um, An Unexpected Meeting. This is chapter 13 of The Magician's Nephew. They get to the garden and written on the gate of the garden, it says, come in by the gold gates or not at all. Take of my fruit for others or forbear. For those who steal or climb my wall will find their heart's desire and find despair. Do you see that idea written into that? Come in the front gate. Do it my way. Take the fruit for the purposes I designed it for other people. Because if you take this fruit some other way, not my way, if you take my fruit your way, it will turn against you. You'll get your heart's desire. And you'll not like it. So Diggory goes in. A terrible thirst and hunger came over him and alongside and, and a longing to taste that fruit. He put it hastily into his pocket, but there were plenty of others. Could it be wrong to taste one? After all, he thought the notice on the gate might not have been exactly an order. It might have only been a piece of advice. Tell me don't, we don't do that. It doesn't, it's not necessarily a commandment. It's just good advice. Even if it had been an order, would he be disobeying it by eating an apple? He had already obeyed the other part about taking for others. See, he's trying to justify breaking the rules. While he was thinking all of this, there happened to look towards the branches, towards the, let's just skip this. Let me go to the green part. There, only a few yards away from him, stood the witch. She was just throwing away the core of an apple. 
which she had eaten. The juice was darker than you would expect and had made a horrid stain around her mouth. Diggory guessed at once that she must have climbed over the wall. And as he began to see that there might be some sense in that last line about getting your heart's desire and getting despair along with it. For the witch looked stronger and prouder than ever, and even, in a way, triumphant. But her face was deadly white, white as salt. Now they run out, um, the witch chases them. Listen to the witch. Tell me there's not this voice, this counter voice trying to say the same thing to you. Foolish boy, said the witch. Why do you run from me? I mean you no harm. If you do not stop and listen to me now, you will miss some knowledge that would have made you happy all your life. See, there's the suggestion. You can have a happiness some other way. Well, I don't want to hear it. Thanks, said Diggory, but he kind of did. I know the, what errand you've come on, continued the witch, for it was I who was close behind you in the woods last night and heard all your counsels. You have plucked fruit in the garden yonder. You have it in your pocket now, and, you, and you're going to carry it? You're going to carry that fruit back untasted to the lion for him to eat, for him to use? You simpleton. Do you not know what fruit that is? I will tell you. It is the apple of youth, the apple of life. I know, for I have tasted it, and I feel already such changes in myself that I know I shall never grow old or die. Eat it, boy. Eat it, and you and I will both live forever and be king and queen of this whole world, or of your world if you decide to go back there. No thanks, said Diggory. I don't know that I care much about living on and on after everyone I know is dead. I'd rather live an ordinary time and go and die and go to heaven. But what about this mother of yours, whom you pretend to love so? What has she got to do with it, said Diggory. Don't you see, fool? One bite of that apple would heal her. You have it in your pocket. You are here by yourself and the lion is far away. Use your magic and go back to your own world. A minute later, you can be at your mother's bedside giving her the fruit. Five minutes later, you will see the color come back to her face. She will tell you the pain is gone. Soon you will tell, she will tell you she feels stronger. Then she will fall asleep. Think of that, hours of sweet natural sleep without pain, without drugs. Next day, everyone will be saying how wonderful she has recovered. Soon she will be quite well and all will be well again. Your home will be happy again. You will be like other boys. Oh, gasped Diggory as if he had been hurt and put his hand to his head. For he knew, he now knew that the most terrible choice lay before him. What has the lion ever done for you that you should be his slave, said the witch? What can, you, what can he do to you once you are back in your own world? And what would your mother think if she knew that you could have taken her pain away and given her back her life and saved your father's heart from being broken and that you wouldn't? That you'd rather run messages for a wild animal in a strange world that is no business of yours. 
I don't think he's a wild animal, said Diggory in a dried up sort of voice. He's, I don't know. Then he's something worse, said the the witch. Look what he's done to you already. Look how heartless he's made you. That is what he does to everyone who listens to him. Cruel, pitiless boy. You would let your mother die rather than, oh, shut up, said said the miserable Diggory, still in the same voice. Do you think I don't see? And then this beautiful phrase. But I promised. Ah, but you didn't know what you were promising and no one here can prevent you. Mother herself, said Diggory, getting the words out with difficulty, would like, wouldn't like it. Awfully strict about keeping promises and not stealing and all that sort of thing. She'd tell me not to do it, quick as anything, if she was here. But she need never know, said the witch. Speaking more sweetly than you would have thought anyone so fierce a face could speak. You wouldn't tell her how you'd got the apple. Your father need never know. No one in your world need know about this whole story. You needn't take the little girl back with you, you know. That was where the witch made her fatal mistake. Of course, Diggory knew that Polly could get away by her own ring as easily as he could get away, but apparently the witch didn't know this. And the meanness of the suggestion that he would leave Polly behind suddenly made all the other things the witch had been saying to him sound false and hollow. And even in the midst of all this misery, his head suddenly cleared, and he said in a different and much louder voice, Look here, where do you come into all this? Why are you so precious fond of my mother all of a sudden? What's it got to do with you? What's your game? Good for you, Diggs, whispered Polly in his ear. Quick, get away now. She hadn't dared to say anything all through the argument because, you see, it wasn't her mother who was dying. Up then, said Diggory, heaving her on fledges back and scrambling up as quickly as he could, the horse spread its rings. Go then, fool, said the witch. Think of me, boy, when you lie old and weak and dying and remember how you threw away the chance of endless youth. It won't be offered you again. Interaction, right? Do it your way. Now, he takes the apple back to Aslan. Let's hear that conversation. Um, If you're following along, I'm in chapter 14, the planting of the tree. Towards the end, um, look for the word look. Son of Adam. Son of Adam, said Aslan, you have sown well. And you Narnians, let it be your first care to guard this tree, for it is your shield. The witch of whom I told you has fled far away into the north of the world. She will live there growing stronger in dark magic. But while that tree flourishes, she will never come down into Narnia. She dare not come within a hundred miles of the tree, for its smell, which is joy and life and health to you, is death and horror and despair to her. 
Everyone was staring solemnly at the tree when Aslan suddenly swung around his head, scattering golden beams of light with his mane as he did so, and fixed his large eyes upon the children. What is it, children? He said, for he caught them in the very act of whispering and nudging one another. Oh, Aslan, sir, said Diggory, turning red, I forgot to tell you, the witch has already eaten one of those apples, one of the same kind that the tree grew from. He hadn't really said all he was thinking, but Polly once said it for him. Diggory was always much more afraid than she of looking a fool. So we thought, Aslan, she said, that there must be some mistake and she can't really mind the smell of those apples. Why do you think that, daughter of Eve? asked Aslan. Well, she ate one. Child, he replied, that is why all the rest are now a horror to her. That is what happens to those who pluck and eat fruits at the wrong time and in the wrong way. The fruit is good, but they loathe it ever after. Oh, I see, said Polly. And I suppose she took it the wrong way. And I, because she took it in the wrong way, she, it won't work for her. I mean, it won't make her always young and all that. Alas, said Eslin, shaking his head, it will. Things, work, things always work according to their nature. She has won her heart's desire. And she has unwavering strength and endless days like a goddess. But length of days with an evil heart is only length of misery, and already she begins to know it. All get what they want. They do not always like it. That is today's theme. All get what they want. They do not always like it. I, I nearly ate one myself, Aslan, said Diggory. Would I? You would, child, said Aslan. For the fruit always works. It must work. But it does not work happily for anyone who plucks it at their own will. If any Narnian, unbidden, had stolen an apple and planted it here to protect Narnia, it would have protected Narnia, but it would have done so by making Narnia into another strong and cruel empire like Charn, not the kindly land I mean it to be. And the witch tempted you to do another thing, my son, didn't she? Yes, Aslan. She wanted me to take an apple home to mother. Understand then that it would have healed her, but not to your joy or hers. The day would have come when both you and she would have looked back and said it would have been better to die in that illness. Diggory could say nothing for tears choked him and he gave up all hope of saving his mother's life. But at the same time, he knew that the lion knew what would have happened and that there might be things more terrible even than losing someone you love by death. Now Aslan was speaking again, almost in a whisper. That is what would have happened, child, with a stolen apple. It is not what will happen now. What I give you now will bring joy. 
It will not in your world give endless life, but it will heal. Go pluck an apple from the tree. For a second, Diggory could hardly understand. It was as if the whole world had turned inside out and upside down. And then, like someone in a dream, he was walking across to the tree, and the king and queen were cheering, and all the creatures were cheering too. He plucked the apple, put it in his pocket, and then came back to Aslan. Please, he said, may we go home now? He had forgotten to say thank you, but he meant it, and Aslan understood it. Do you see what C.S. Lewis is trying to teach? You try to find a happiness outside of Christ, you're going to find misery. But once you do it Aslan's way, once you do it Christ's way, what he gives you is exactly what you needed. The apple Aslan gave him heals his mom in the way that his mom needed to be healed. And there it is. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Now let's contrast this with Diggory's uncle, Andrew. Uncle Andrew, well, let's just read it. I'll just let you make the application. Let's go back and let's read the story as it happened to Andrew. Okay, I think we need to jump. Oh, wait, I went too far. Nope, sorry, it is back here. So let's go back to the founding of Narnia as Andrew saw it, as Uncle Andrew saw it. Here we go, ready? Um, if you want to follow along, I am in, sorry, let me get a, I am in, uh, sorry, chapter 10, the first joke and other matters. Chapter 10, the first joke and other matters towards the end. Ready? We must now go back a bit and explain what the whole... Remember, this is the founding of Narnia. Aslan came singing Narnia into existence. The animals were cheering it on. We must go back a bit to explain what the whole scene had looked like from Uncle Andrew's point of view. It had not made at all the same impression on him as on the cabbie and on the children. And I love this line. For what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. And it also depends on what sort of person you are. Ever since the animals had appeared, Uncle Adrian had been shrinking further and further back into the thicket. He watched them very hard and of course, but he wasn't really interested in seeing what they were doing, only in seeing whether they were going to make a rush at him. Like the witch, he was dreadfully practical. His simple he simply didn't notice that Aslan had chosen one pair out of every kind of beasts. All he saw, or thought he saw, was a lot of dangerous wild animals walking vaguely about. And he kept on wondering what the other animals didn't, why the other animals didn't run away from the big lion. When the great moment came and the beast spoke, he missed the whole point. For a rather interesting reason. 
When the lion had first begun singing, long ago, when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Then when the sun arose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, as he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make believe it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might do in a zoo in our world. Of course it really can't have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out, out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. And Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else even if he had wanted to. And when the last and when at last the lion spoke and said Narnia awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And when the beast spoke in answer, he heard only barkings and growlings, bayings and howlings. And when they laughed, well, you can imagine. That was the worst for Uncle Andrew than anything that had happened yet. Such a horrid, bloodthirsty din of hungry and angry brutes he had never heard in his life. And then to his utter rage and horror, he saw the other three humans actually walking out into the open to meet the animals. The fools, he said to himself. Now those brutes will eat the rings along with the children and I'll never be able to get home again. What a selfish little boy that Diggory is. And the others are just as bad. If they want to throw away their own lives, that's their business. But what about me? They don't seem to be thinking of that. No one thinks of me. Now, the, the animals try to save, or the, save Andrew, and they pour water on him, seeing that will revive him. He's just this horrible heap. And that's where Polly turns to Aslan and says, could you say something to him to unfrighten him? I think this is such a profound statement from Aslan. We're going to jump to... We're going to jump to chapter 14, the planting of the tree again. So this is where Polly turns to Aslan and says, Please, Aslan, said Polly, could you say something to enfrighten him? Can he? Can Jesus help? He has the power. I love this. Aslan says this. I'm going to pick it up right here. But I cannot tell that to this old sinner. And I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. Oh, sons of Adam, how cleverly you defend yourself against all that might do you good. I can't help you. You have made yourself unable to hear me.
Everyone gets what they want. Everyone gets what they want. Powerful thought. Comments, thoughts, ideas, please. Um, it does talk in Alma when he's talking to Zezer about the tree of life. Um, that um, if Adam and Eve were to partake of the tree of life after taking fruit knowledge of good and evil, that they would be have eternal life in a fallen state. And it would have they would have been miserable. Um, I wanted to get to Eustace and the dragon, but we're going to have to save that for next week. Maybe we just, let me do one more. Let me do, I could do one quick one. And maybe this is a great way to end. What do I do to make sure that I'm always choosing his way? What do I do? How can I make sure I am not, maybe, well, let's do one. Let me do one thing in between. Would you turn to section one of the Doctrine and Covenants? The Doctrine and Covenants didn't begin with section one. It was added later because the Lord added it. And look at verse six. He calls section one the preface. The Lord intended section one to be the preface. Now look at what he says is really wrong today. What's broken today? In verse uh, 15, for they have strayed from mine ordinances and have broken mine everlasting covenant. They seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way, and after the image of his own God. That's why there's a restoration. There's a restoration because the world has forgotten his way and are pursuing their way and the problem with trying to make your making the problem with trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is you quite often succeed so let me give you one last thought that's kind of related so the very last book in the chronicles of narnia it's the it's kind of the the end of narnia it's Judgment Day. It's the last battle. It begins when a monkey and a donkey find a lion skin. And they put it on the donkey. And everyone thinks it's Aslan. And they start, what do you want? And the monkey and the donkey see this as an opportunity to control the world. I have fooled people into thinking that this is Christ, that this is Aslan who will make you happy. C.S. Lewis throws in a beautiful little line that I want to end with. To make sure you're not fooled by a, a lesser happiness, fooled by a donkey in, an, in, in, a, in a lion's skin. How can you make sure you follow Christ? So I'm going to turn to chapter one of the last battle. If you want to join me. So jumping all the way to the last battle, chapter one by Cauldron Pool. After 
the donkey puts the lion's skin on is this beautiful line. No one, no one who had ever seen a real lion would have been taken in for a moment. But if someone who had never seen a lion looked at Puzzle, that's the donkey, in his lion skin, he just might mistake him for a lion. If he didn't come too close, that's significant. And if the light wasn't too good, that's significant. And if Puzzle didn't let out a bray or didn't make any noise with his hoofs. I think that's so profound. Anyone who knew a real lion would not have been taken in for a moment. I think the antidote is to seek his way. It's to, like Jill did, kneel down in front of him and drink from the stream. It's to fearing and trembling. Let him in. Let the big scary lion in and discover what his way really does. At the very end, let's go back to um, the magician's nephew. The very end of the magician's nephew, it ends this way. And the memory of that moment, the memory that they had with Aslan, the memory of that moment stayed with them always. So that as long as they both lived, if they ever were sad or afraid or angry, the thought of all that golden goodness and the feeling that it was still there quite close, just around the corner or some, just behind some door would come back and make them sure deep down inside that all was well. Taste the goodness of Jesus. Know what a real lion looks like so that you can begin to say his way is the only way. There is no other stream. I bear you my testimony. There is no other stream. You try to find a happiness your own way, you'll never find it. There is no other stream. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.